Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify. In store, Shopify POS is everything you need to sell in person. From payments to inventory, Shopify unites your sales into one commerce platform. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash retail23. Shopify.com slash retail23. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Emma. We're Rachel. And we're Rachel. (laughs) (laughs) Not that we're dehumanising you at all on this podcast. Um, (laughs) And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we react to the mini budget. So we're recording just after Kwasi Kwarteng, the new chancellor, delivered his, well, it was spun as a mini budget, but it was actually a pretty maxi budget, wasn't it? It was the biggest package of tax cuts since the 70s. Uncosted, of course, so we don't have the usual OBR analysis of what it would mean for for the future, but it it looks like a great deal of borrowing, as was predicted, partly or mainly because of the big bailout of energy companies. But there are a few surprises as well, like cutting the top rate of tax, the 45p tax band. What was it like in the chamber, Rachel? Because you were there watching it and we heard reports that people actually gasped when he announced that policy. And some Tory MPs were looking a little bit gloomy because he was unpicking a lot of the past chancellor and indeed chancellors beforehand, their their sort of entire vision of how the economy should be run. It was extraordinary, really, because I think when you look back to Rishi Sunak's budget, pretty much every measure got briefed out beforehand. So he very much got a ticking off from the speaker, Lindsay Hoyle, for how much had been pre-announced before he got into the chamber. Whereas this was kind of like briefed as a as a mini budget, but then it just was measure after measure being announced. And yeah, I think some people were really taken aback, in particular by income tax measures. There was also another measure on trade union strikes. So so it we already knew about the one that about critical services where unions could go on strike, but workers would still need to provide a, a minimum service for people. But in addition to that, he also said that if unions wanted to ballot to go on strike, they also had to put their pay offer to their members to get a vote on the pay offer just to say that no negotiations had been exhausted. That was entirely new as well. And then you just had the stamp duty so you've got threshold will double to 250,000 for first time buyers and the threshold from 300,000 to 425,000 on properties and you had the uncapped bankers bonuses was confirmed as well it was it was just it was I, I don't think anyone was quite prepared for just how much was in there it was it wasn't wasn't a fiscal event this was a a full budget but of course without the the OBR analysis to go with it which is concerning a lot of people, including, rather surprisingly, the Institute of Directors. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, from you outlining all of those top lines of the of the budget, it sounds like a bonanza for the rich. Is that what it amounts to, Emma? You've been doing the economic analysis of this. 
Yeah, it is. It absolutely is. And Liz Truss has been fairly open that she's a believer in the idea of trickle-down economics. She said that, you know, the people who pay top rate of tax pay more tax and therefore it's better for the economy. But yeah, I mean, that obviously we had the cap on bankers' bonuses being removed. We had the national insurance rise being removed, which which will benefit those at the top end of the earning scale the most. We had the highest rate of income tax being abolished. So um, the highest rate of income tax is now 40% rather than 45%, which I think Rachel Cunliffe has some views on. <laughs> there, there is some maths that has been done, not by me, but estimated that if you are on £200,000 a year, so the top 1%, you will be £3,000 a year better off. If you're on £20,000 a year, all of the tax cuts add up to about £75 a year better off. So this isn't really about fairness. In fact, it is, is the opposite of, of that. And Liz Truss, when she was sort of being asked about this a week or so ago, said that she didn't think redistribution should be the whole point. It, it's now looking like actually it, it's the opposite. It's an ideological idea that the best way to grow the economy is to incentivize the richest and the, the biggest companies to work more and to produce more. And the idea of trickle-down economics isn't that, you know, that that wealth will somehow make it down to the poorest as water trickling down. I've seen a lot of charts and, and infographics that kind of suggest that's what the ideology is. It's actually something quite different to that. It's, it's not about trickling down wealth at, at all. It's literally about if they work more, that there will be more jobs. That's an ideological position, which kind of works in an economics textbook, but doesn't necessarily work in an economy where there are lots of other reasons for low growth and low productivity. So if you have problems with your infrastructure, which means that people can't make it to those jobs, if you have a really restrictive planning system, that means that people can't live near their jobs. If you have very, very expensive childcare costs, which means that working parents are effectively shut out of large parts of the labour market. If you have a health service, which is crumbling, which means that people who would love to be working can't because their health conditions haven't been treated. All of those are kind of structural issues that mean that this idea of let's give the richest more money so then that there will be no jobs, it sort of blocks that. And one of the things this budget does by increasing borrowing and handing those increases out to the to the richest in the form of tax cuts is it makes it harder to address those structural problems because quite simply there is less money for them. So I think even if you kind of agree with the economic principle on paper, yes, I can see how more money here might lead to more jobs, might lead to higher growth. When you look at the actual reality of where the economy is, you've got a lot of economic experts saying there is so much stuff you have to fix first and no real awareness of that in what the Chancellor said today. I mean, from a from a purely mathematical point of view, abolishing the highest rate of income tax is not really that much skin off anyone's nose or Liz Truss's nose anyway, because it's going to, according to the Institute for Fiscal Studies, it's going to affect 481,000 people who earn more than 150 grand. We live in a, a country of more than 60 million people. Like It's not going to affect that many people and it's not going to affect certainly the tax take enormously. So it seems to be very much more ideological than than mathematical. There are lots of little ways in which sort of the government is signalling that it's not 
are terribly concerned about inequality anymore. I mean, even when you look at the national insurance cut, which was briefed out beforehand. So if you're on £15,000 a year, you'll save like 30 quid. But if you're on £50,000 a year, you'll save 468 quid. So it kind of proportionally benefits richer people more. And when there was, there are also lots of little political signals as to which speaks to that just lack of care for inequality anymore. For example, the new benefits sanctions regime, where the number of hours where where you can work before you face threats of a sanction for not looking for work, it goes up. It's currently nine hours. It goes up to twelve hours on Monday, and it goes up to fifteen hours in January. So that's like another signal of who they expect to to do what. Yeah, and something that doesn't necessarily save them a lot of money, but it sends a signal about what kind of priorities this government has. You know, that little part of the speech, it's actually inflationary. The Bank of England has even said we need fewer people in work. We have the highest or the lowest level of unemployment in 48 years. We do not need people going out and getting more jobs. Obviously, people need jobs. But from an economics point of view, right now, the more people you have in work, the higher wages are rising, the more that pushes up inflation. So this kind of idea of penalising people who don't have jobs seems absolutely bonkers to me. Yeah. And and actually, I did want to ask you a bit, a bit about that, Emma, in terms of the sort of integrity of the UK economy, because he did finally put a cost on the borrowing that the energy package would require, £60 billion for the first six months from October. And obviously, there's a lot of borrowing going on on top of that to fund the other tax cuts because they haven't announced any Apart from the benefits cut, they haven't announced any cuts to public spending. I mean, that borrowing is obviously becoming more expensive. Does it matter? I mean, how does that all work? Well, the borrowing came, became more expensive during the course of the speech because <laughs> UK guilt yields went up. So, I mean, you know, the, the, again, the Institute for Fiscal Studies, I don't want to keep quoting them, but they they have done a lot of looking into this. And their concern is that the, the debt is about to become unsustainable. So um, Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng are, are betting, essentially. And again, the word gambling has been thrown around a lot. But they are really are betting on, the, on UK growth increasing. UK growth has to increase in order for us to be able to pay this enormous debt. And, you know, there's, as you say, it's uncosted. So there's a lot of kind of guesses going around. But two guesses that I've seen is that UK borrowing will reach 100 billion or 125 billion by the end of the year. The OBR had expected about 20, I think it was about 26 billion. So, I mean, it's an enormous amount. Although the one thing to say about the, um, the energy package is that technically... It's not the government that's paying for it, it's us. Wait, so we're paying out of general taxation basically for the rest of our lives. And that was one of the dividing lines that Rachel Reeves, Shadow Chancellor, drew when she uh, did her response to the to the budget. And she said that this these changes amounted to a comprehensive demolition of the government's last 12 years in power. What did you make of that line? Because I thought it was a pretty weird line to take. I, I, I always thought that it would be in Labour's favour to try and tie this government to all of the Conservative government's past, which Rachel Reeves did do at the beginning of her speech, saying the person who'd been there all the way through was Liz Truss, the Prime Minister, the only you know, person in cabinet who's been there the whole time since since David Cameron's days. And, you know, although we're talking about this as a sort of de-sunakification de of the economy by Kwarteng and, and Truss, 
there's a lot of similarities to what other chancellors have done in the past. You know, this energy bill package is is very similar to what the furlough scheme did, sort of trying to keep people on ice through a crisis. And then George Osborne, he cut the top rate of tax in 2012. He cut stamp duty in 2014. And they were always punishing people on benefits more and more throughout those budgets during the austerity years in particular. You know, low regulation zones. I mean, we've heard that before from the free ports policy. So is it actually that much of a departure from Tory government's past? And is it in Labour's interest to suggest that it's some kind of revolution? Because what if people do the same thing that they did with Boris Johnson and assume that this is a whole different governing party when it is when it is a lot of the same people in power? What did you think, Rachel Wormuth? I thought Rachel Reeves' response was was quite good. I think she had a really great line about how Quateng and Truss were like two gamblers at the casino chasing a, a last run. And I think that kind of what she was trying to get out there was that this government's like borrowing so much more money and gambling on on higher growth at this point while giving up on the idea of it of trying to change inequality in the UK. And it's kind of turbocharging that. And I think Rachel Reeves may have her eye on further down the road is interest rates on mortgages. And I think a few people have, have been pointing out already that if if some of the of the higher earners in, in the UK, if the cost of their mortgage starts to overtake what they're saving in tax here, I think that people will start to eye the government. I think when Rachel Reeves rounded off her speech, she kind of said the Tories are not helping the cost of living crisis. They are the cost of living crisis. I think in the long run, Labour will try to pin the cost of of people's mortgages and the people who would ordinarily be conservative voters, perhaps. I think she'll try to tie that to some of the decisions made today. What's really interesting about the stamp duty reforms is that estate agents aren't that impressed by it. I've had a lot of um, reaction from estate agents and they... You know, we had this, they abolished stamp duty for a, for a period, I think it was up on properties up to £500,000 for a period during the pandemic. You know, what actually happened was that it kind of sent the market into an insane frenzy to the point where the rises in house prices just kind of cancelled out the saving that anyone made on stamp duty. And I think estate agents are kind of, they've seen this before now and they're, they're about to see it again. And what they actually really want is a bit of stability. I don't think that, you know, they're that happy about this. As somebody who is trying to move after the stamp duty holiday, if you speak to estate agents, what they'll say is it really distorted the market because it led to lots of sales going through there and then it being very difficult to, to sell or buy after that period because people felt the loss of the stamp duty holiday and also now are incredibly uncertain about the winter and the future. There is a huge amount of instability in the housing market in general. I realise that sympathy for people who are trying to move house, you know, compared to renters who have seen that their rents absolutely shoot up as a result of all of this limited sympathy. But I think it is worth saying that further distortions don't really help anyone. And to to bring in a piece that Will Dunn, our business editor, wrote a, a while back, actually, the house prices going up doesn't help basically anyone, including homeowners they think it does but it doesn't actually help it doesn't help the the wider economy i just wanted to go back to the question of of rachel reeves and labor and whether it makes sense to separate this from the last 12 years of tory government or to link it to that i think it's worth pointing out that the big problem for the UK economy is that growth has basically flatlined for over a decade. And there are lots and lots and lots of reasons for that. But one of them 
surely is the austerity policies of the Cameron and Osborne government, which we've talked about on this podcast before. And ideologically, we're all about let's balance the budget, let's get the finances in good shape, which essentially meant slashing spending everywhere on on waste. And that was their message, we're, we're, we're slashing wasteful spending. And what we have discovered recently is a lot of the waste that they cut out wasn't actually waste, it was resilience built into the system that would help us maintain our infrastructure or build new infrastructure or make sure that our water systems worked so we didn't have leaks and, and during a drought and, and floods when it rained or making sure that the NHS had enough capacity to deal with a pandemic which meant that when the pandemic happened the whole thing didn't completely crumble which is what it's done and there are similar issues in schools and in criminal justice and in policing I could just go on and on about all the things that were cut because they were wasteful and what it has actually done is really limited UK productivity because people were relying on those services and that infrastructure and that makes it much harder for people to work and for businesses to to grow and employ more people. So I, I think what we're getting now is real quite quite sharp ideological shifts in terms of conservative thinking. And we shouldn't underestimate the fact that the the trustonomics Reagan spending splurge tax cut is markedly different from what happened under Boris Johnson and Boris Johnson and previous Conservative governments. But it's all necessary because of Conservative decisions that were taken over a decade ago, and they haven't quite accepted how much damage they did. And so now we're seeing this sort of ideological scramble to try and repair some of that in the two years before the next election. Yeah, that's absolutely right. They're sort of trying in vain to clean up some of the mess that austerity made. I mean, it's very obvious. Cracking down on strikes, well, who were the ones who froze public sector pay over and over again? Um, It's a really good point. So yes, rather than a continuation or a departure, it's more of a sort of hasty cleanup or putting a plaster over the cracks. Rachel W., you wanted to come in as well. The target is to go for for growth. It's for this 2.5% that the Chancellor of Kwasi Kwarteng wants to create. But just feels at this point not at all guaranteed and he admits that himself says none of this is going to happen overnight he says it'll happen over the medium term so it's a a big gamble on getting this plan to work and we've seen today confidence in the pound is just like absolutely plummeted it's not necessarily what are the reasons to invest in the in the UK at this point and you know when you couple all of that with Brexit and with the, the state of the economy already because of of Covid and the stamp duty cut will also just increase the cost of houses and there are already so many people who can't afford their their first home. So it's not entirely clear exactly where growth is going to come from at this point. Obviously, this is one of those things where a lot of the stories from the budget will will sort of fall into place over the next few days. So I'm sure we'll be discussing them in future episodes as well. But I think we have a budget-specific question for the second half of the podcast. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors including Ian McEwan on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale, 
Might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? That the creature lies stranded on the beach, as whales sometimes are? That the guts and blubber and ribcage are on display? A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical, technical and quite, well, obvious. And Maria Wilczek on Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now it's time for a section we like to call You You Ask Us. And we are (laughs) cheating a little bit because this is a very reactive recording, but our question is actually from Rachel Cunliffe, who will be attempting to answer it. Um, Does this now mean that a post-2009 graduate on 50k a year will pay a higher marginal tax rate than someone on 200k who went to university for free? And I think... Uh, we have an answer. Rachel, did you manage to get an answer to that question? I did. I got it from uh, the New Statesman's George Eaton. Uh, this is a topic that he writes a lot about, and he answered my question on Twitter. A graduate earning 50k will pay a higher marginal tax rate than someone earning 150k. A graduate will pay 51%, and somebody who is earning 150k but does not have a student loan to repay will pay 42% as their marginal tax rate. And then a graduate earning 25K, so less than the median wage, will pay a 40% marginal tax rate, which is just two points less than top earners. Now, um, I'm just going to say people get very upset when I point this out because they say it's not a tax, it's a loan repayment. Um, You shouldn't have gone to university if you didn't want to have to repay it. For all intents and purposes, the way student loans are run, sold to graduates, managed and sort of handled in this country makes them essentially a graduate tax. But it's a very regressive graduate tax. It only applies to graduates who started their university courses after 2009 when the fees went up to over 9,000 a term. So if you are, for example, a member of the cabinet who got your university education entirely paid for by by a taxpayers who went to university earlier, you don't have to pay it at all. And it's one that uh, you pay back depending on what you're earning, but at quite a high rate sort of added onto your tax bill. What that basically means is that a graduate earning over 50,000, which I know is quite a high amount, but in London, if you're looking at people thinking about maybe trying to buy a house or a flat, a, a studio, maybe trying to start families, 
for half of what they earn, every pound that they earn is is not even making it into their bank account, which is kind of important if you're a conservative government that believes that people should keep more of their money and that the way to encourage people to work more and grow the economy is to allow them to do that. And I think it's really interesting that conservatives seem to think that if you're earning over £150,000 a year, you really need that incentive to, to work that little bit extra to make sure that you don't think, now nah, I'm being taxed too much, I, I won't bother. But if you're a, a young graduate who is struggling, renting in, in the private sector and looking at if you'll ever be able to, to start a family, then it's like, no, it won't. economics won't affect you at all. So uh, interesting double standard there, I think. Yeah. Does anyone else want to come in on that? I was going to ask Rachel to explain what a marginal tax rate is. Yes. So a marginal tax rate is basically the amount of tax you pay on every additional pound that you earn. So you get your tax-free allowance at certain points. It's basically when you're earning over a certain amount, how much of the money that you earn do you actually get? And the the thing with graduates repaying their student loans on the post-2009 system is that in addition to income tax and in addition to national insurance, 9% of every pound they earn goes back into repayments. So if you added all that up before all all these tax changes, sort of including the national insurance rise, a graduate earning more than about £27,000, which is when the rate kicks in, would be paying 42 pence basically in tax on every extra pound that they earned and one earning over 50,000 would be paying 52 pence, so more than half on every extra pound that they earned. Now, the changes that the Chancellor laid out today bring that down a little bit because obviously income tax is being cut from 20% to, to 19 and that national insurance rise is being scrapped. But that still puts them at a higher rate of tax than the top earners who have seen that the highest rate of tax abolished. And I think it's kind of important when people talk about, oh, we're, we're putting tax up by a penny or, or whatever to pay for the NHS, to pay for social care, of, of how that all adds up. It's about 20% in income tax, about 12 or 13% in, in national insurance, and then that additional 9% in student loan repayments Worth saying again that if you are on the old system or, or indeed you you went to university kind of in the, in the 90s and before, the taxpayer paid all of it for you. So this idea that it's fair for graduates to pay that much because they got a university education out of it. Well, there are lots of people in this country who got a university education who aren't paying that 50% tax rate. Well, I think, yeah, I think this is this is one of those many points that people are going to point out as a response to this budget, basically about the unfairness of who benefits from this and who loses out or at least doesn't benefit, especially because we're going into this winter where, okay, you know, they've frozen energy prices, but still our energy bills on average are going to be nearly double what they were last winter. And, you know, couple that with these stricter rules on benefits, the rising food prices, rising interest rates. I mean, the costs that people are facing are so much higher so fast. So most people will be having a winter where they are worried about their money all of the time in this country. And so it is very natural for people to try and point out the unfairness of the way that these policies fall. Something that I've written about on the site, which our readers can read if they want to, but they might not necessarily like it, is that unfairness has been found by poverty and inequality charities to be a word 
that doesn't resonate with people in focus groups, which I think is really interesting because obviously you do have this feeling in Britain that, that we have a sense of fair play, but that's a bit different from saying something not, something's not fair and it doesn't really actually cut through to people. And from the research that we've been doing since January into public perceptions of wealth and salary and class, we've found that people aren't actually that riled up about high pay or tax cuts for people on high pay, which, you know, might be a bit counterintuitive, particularly for people on the left who kind of want to see the world as they want to see it, you know, that people would be outraged by this. They, they aren't necessarily always outraged by this. And there's a number of different reasons why that is. And one of the main ones is that, you know, people themselves care most about their own financial situation, their own tax They don't necessarily project their own circumstances onto someone earning 200k having a tax break. You know, it doesn't necessarily translate in the way that maybe a a neat little headline or a labour attack line might want to try and link the two things. And second of all, you know, people can imagine themselves one day earning that much money and not wanting to give half of it to to the state, which is, you know, it is a small c conservative view. And it's something that, you know, the Conservative Party, particularly in its current iteration, or at least those governing it in, in, in on the on the front benches, believe and want to try and use in the policies that they're introducing. So it's not necessarily a gift for Labour that they're uncapping bankers' bonuses and that they're cutting the top rate of tax. And Ed Miliband tried this. I've spoken about this on the podcast before, so I'm really sorry for boring you and our listeners. But, you know, he called George Osborne's budget a millionaire's budget. He kept accusing the Tory government of a tax cut for millionaires. But it just wasn't something that resonated with people. And, you know, when you try and get people in focus groups or in polling to sort of draw a line where they think someone has too much money or too much wealth or a salary that's too high, they can't do it. They won't do it. So (laughs) I know that the current economic situation is different now and that makes things very unpredictable. But I would say that Labour has to think twice before perhaps falling into a Tory trap on this. Is it because people are fundamentally quite aspirational? Like, I always remember that bit in The West Wing classic where they're talking about people do get upset when you tax the rich because everybody expects to be rich one day yeah people can imagine themselves perhaps earning that money one day and so they Mm -hmm. don't like the idea that they might have to give so much of it away so yeah I mean (laughs) things can change of course and we don't know we haven't got sort of public sentiment on on the most recent announcement but I've had my nose in this data for for basically the whole of this year and from what I think, I think Labour would do better just to try and make the Conservative Party look like they're tired and out of ideas and like a little eccentric in terms of how they face the sort of modern challenges of Britain. Well, I hope our listeners enjoyed that uh, brand new section that we created, You Grill Rachel. <laughs> I'm sure we'll bring it back at some point. Yes, thank you to you all for coming on on such a busy news day. And we will be covering the fallout of the budget in episodes to come. And for obvious reasons, we've been discussing domestic politics today, but uh, Liz Truss did do her first foreign visit as Prime Minister this week. If you want to hear me discuss that with our World Review team, you can listen to the latest episode of World Review, our international podcast. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Emma Hazlitt, Rachel Wearmouth, and Rachel Cunliffe. We're produced by Mae Robson, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review.
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify. In store. Shopify POS is everything you need to sell in person. From payments to inventory, Shopify unites your sales into one commerce platform. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash retail 23. Shopify.com slash retail 23.